Data brokers sell your information to scammers, spammers, and anyone else who may want to target you. Your full name, email, home address, health records, even your relatives. It's all out there. That's why I've been using Aura, the sponsor of today's podcast. Aura shows me which data brokers are selling my information and automatically submits opt-out requests for me. Cleaning up my information not only helps reduce the amount of spam I get, but it protects me from hackers who could use this information to help them access my social media accounts, my bank accounts, or other sensitive information. Aura also does so much more to protect me and my family from online threats I can't see. It's really easy to set up, so I don't have to download several different apps to get things like antivirus, VPN, password management, parental controls, identity theft insurance, and more. I get everything at one affordable price. You may already have one or two of these tools already, but not having Aura is like locking the front door and leaving the back door wide open. Aura is always on, doing the hard work of keeping me safe so I can focus on other tasks with peace of mind. I value my privacy, and I value yours, my valued listener. You can go to Aura.com slash new to start your two-week free trial, also linked below in the description. Remember, guys, it's a two-week free trial, so allow Aura to be the security that gives you the peace of mind and the comfort that someone out there is looking out for you. Aura.com slash new. Uh, thank you, Dr. Jones, for coming on to the show. We really do appreciate your time here. You're welcome. Good to be here. Okay. So, Dr. Jones, if you could, can you just give us uh, just a little bit about yourself uh, to some of the listeners who may not know who you are, just a little brief summary of your life? Okay. I grew up in Philadelphia, uh, attended uh, Catholic school there, Temple University for my master's degree, so I lived in Germany for three years where I taught English, came back, got my PhD, uh, got a job at St. Mary's College in South Bend, Indiana. Got fired one year after I got there for being against abortion at a Catholic college. Started a magazine, which was called Fidelity, which is now uh, called Culture Wars, uh, which is about uh, culture and war and so on. <laughs> and uh, in that, over, I've been doing this for the past 40 some years now. Uh, and during that time, I've also written a series of books, a number of books on various topics, all of which relate one way or the other to the culture wars. Uh, and uh, that's pretty much it. Now, how would you, would would you even label yourself at all? Would you label yourself conservative, right wing? What would be the best way to sort of, to sort of think of E. Michael Jones as far as where he stands on that spectrum? Uh, I've been expelled from the synagogue known as conservatism long time ago. Uh, uh, I would consider myself conservative, but no one else does. <laughs> so what do, yeah. what good does it do? What yeah. good does it do if I say that? I used to call myself a conservative Catholic, but that doesn't work anymore. So I guess I'm just just a Catholic. Yeah, that's kind of my story as well. Uh, I was recently on a podcast with a very progressive evangelical, and he said, well, what do you consider yourself? And I say, I'm more of a Catholic fascist, I guess, if you can understand or wrap your head around that. And his the look on his face kind of, it's like his head exploded. He, he wouldn't have ever expected anyone to out himself as a Catholic fascist. Um, let's, let's start off going in hot here. I have this idea that I hate that I hear from people where they say that Jews are an ethnicity. And I, I think of that a little bit of a cope because I've always thought that, okay, Eastern Europeans are Eastern Europeans. You know, you could say that people are Russians, people are Ukrainian, they're Georgian, things like that. I say, no, 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 no. People ethnically can be Jewish. And I've always held that, well, if you're not a practicing of the Jewish faith, then 
you can't consider yourself Jewish, but you'd probably disagree with that, right? Yeah, I, I, well, it depends on where you're talking about. I think that in America, Jew, uh, Jew, Jew is an ethnicity uh, because I think that America is a country that is based on three ethnic groups, which are based on three religions, Protestant, Catholic, Jew. That's, and now that, that theory is called the triple melting pot. It was created by sociologists in the 1930s to try to describe what happens to people who come here from all over the world. Well, at that point, it was mostly Europe. Okay, but after three generations, you lose your native language, but you retain your religion. Uh, so I later was doing research in Yugoslavia, and I thought, oh, Yugoslavia, it's the same thing as the United States. It's a three, three ethnic groups based on three religions. I think it's so I think it is an ethnic group and it is a religion. Mm-hmm. And uh, the point is that uh, the Jews will play one off against the other, depending on which is to, to their advantage. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. I agree with that. Okay. Did did Catholics in the early days of America, did Catholics and Jews, they, they were kind of in the same boat as far as being discriminated by white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, right? Right. What do, you, what do you think happened, let's say, late 1800s and the early 1910s, especially uh, with the influx of Catholic immigrants into the country from Ireland and, uh, you know, from Italy and all that kind of stuff where... I guess, did the Protestants figure that they needed more votes from other Christians, that they would appeal to the Catholic sort of sensibilities and say, okay, we'll, we'll give you guys back rights to vote and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll allow you to hold positions of power. Did, did that have anything to do with, let's say, the sort of, uh, what, what would I say is the best, the division between, let's say, the, the Catholics and the Jews in America? Okay, so first of all, uh, ethnic groups always fight with each other in America, and that goes for uh, uh, Catholic groups. If you're talking about the Catholics in the 19th century in America, mm-hmm. uh, the two largest groups were Catholics or Irish and German uh, by the middle of the 19th century, and uh, they pretty much couldn't talk to each other. Mm. This is the situation of the Catholic Church in the 19th century, where uh, South Bend, Indiana, you uh, within two blocks, okay, you have an Irish church, a Polish church, and a German church. Right. And those, those people couldn't talk to each other. Uh, so how, how, in what sense does the cat, are they Catholics? Or what, in what, in, no, it had to happen over a period of assimilation. In other right. words, three generations. That uh, pretty much took place. I, I think I'm paradigmatic of that because I am a third generation uh, Catholic. And when we came to power, uh, when I came of age, let's say in Philadelphia in the 1960s, uh, I got married in 1969. Uh, 1962, uh, I went to the 4th of July celebration. I was 14 years old. And there was a Catholic mayor on the podium, Catholic uh, governor of Pennsylvania, and a Catholic president of the United States of America. And everybody, the WASP elite, was very upset at that point. And they declared war on the Catholics. And they certainly declared war on the Catholics in Philadelphia. There's mm-hmm. no question about it. Uh, everybody hated the Catholics. Uh, I, I, I mean, the uh, that's the, the WASP elite. This is a Protestant country. The only reason the Catholics are here is because they needed cheap labor. The Catholics fought, the Irish fought uh, back. Uh, 
they create they created groups like the Molly Maguires, which were involved in the labor movement. And basically, the WASP elite had to concede, had to call a truce. They had to call a ceasefire. So they basically let them alone in their neighborhoods. If you're talking about 1910, every big city in the North and East is a mosaic of ethnic neighborhoods. This mm-hmm. is not like the South. The South right. is completely different. Down South, this is what Dorothy Tillman said. Down South, you was either black or white. You wasn't none of this Irish or Polish or any of that type of stuff. It was a completely different situation down south. And what happened is that the situation down south got imposed on the Catholic ethnic neighborhoods of the north during the period of the 60s. It was called the Civil Rights Movement. And one of the main villains in this regard was Martin Luther King, Mm -hmm. who showed up in Chicago. Wait a minute. There's no segregation in Chicago. And he thought as soon as he shows up, he's black. Well, then the people across the street are white. They didn't know they were white. They thought they were Lithuanians. And they thought, why are these why are these non-Lithuanians trying to move into my neighborhood? And they threw rocks. He got hit in the head with a rock. So I'm saying it was always this type of ethnic conflict in America. It's never changed. It's never changed. And the Catholics uh, are always, uh, have always been unwelcome, culturally unwelcome. Uh, uh, only if they assimilate and become like Teddy Kennedy or Joe Biden are, are they accepted. And to that extent, they're hardly Catholic. How good of a Catholic was RFK? I think he was a very good Catholic. I, I, I reread a story about his assassination and how the busboy uh, put a rosary in RFK's hand. And I see the image of RFK laying there with the rosary on his body. And I was kind of moved by that. And uh, I'd always, you know, I'd always heard you know, uh, JFK is our first Catholic president. And I don't know if I can, he's kind of, he seemed to me like a Joe Biden kind of Catholic. The way he no, acted. No, no, no. Right? Like, I think, I think uh, he, he was a privileged character, came from wealth, but I think he had a conversion during his time in office. Oh, really? He was a womanizer, but there's evidence that he had a conversion. And the conversion was basically, he, he realized that God had chosen him to end the Cold War. Cold War benefited nobody but the military industrial complex. So he was using the Catholic Church, specifically John the Twenty Third, for back channel negotiations with Nikita Khrushchev. And uh that he stood up, this is after he stood up to Khrushchev at the Bay of Pigs. Uh at that point, I think this is what this is what signed his death warrant. The military industrial complex, along with the Israelis, uh, who wanted a nuclear nuclear bombs. Uh, basically decided to kill John F. Kennedy. And then Robert Kennedy came along and he was going to, we was going to win. Uh, and when he got to, into the Oval Office, he was going to find out who killed his brother. Right. And that's why they had to kill him. What a tragedy. What a, what a tragedy. I, I don't know if the country would be any different than it is now. Oh, are you F. kidding anyone. me? Are what you, you th- kidding me? What do you it think would be compl- different? That was a coup d'etat. The murder of John F. Kennedy was a coup d'etat, and the people who took over are the ones that have ridden, and they've ridden us into the ground in the Ukraine. We are in an impossible situation. Now, yeah. again, you have to take the t- deal with it in time. The, the CIA was a, a WAS operation. Uh, the Jews, uh, especially specifically the, the Jews in Israel, that was another operation. There was not, there was some animosity between them. 
uh, but they were the junior partner. Over this period of time, they became the senior partner and the WASP elite just disappeared. They disappeared. I was on a show with um, Michael Scheuer, a hero of mine, because he stood up to the Congress, a CIA guy who stood up to Congress and said, Israel's running our country. So I said, geez, I'm glad we're on the show because I'm, I'm hoping that you'll tell me that the adults in the room at the CIA are going to take charge. He said, there are no adults in the room anymore. That substantiates my claim that the WASP elite simply disappeared and were replaced by the Jewish uh, elite that runs this country now. Oh, interesting. So you talk about JFK's, let's say, uh, conversion as far as uh, becoming a better Catholic toward the end of his life. Have you heard any of these rumors about the con- the possible conversion of George Washington upon his deathbed calling for a Catholic priest? I've heard this numerous times, but I've never heard of any of the history or any facts or evidence to substantiate that, that George Washington converted to Catholicism. Yes, I have heard those stories. And I have not looked into it any more than you have. It's just a story that I heard. The Masons have claimed uh, right. uh, Washington, but and maybe he was a Mason. Uh, but the point is that uh, oh, there there are no atheists in foxholes, and maybe there uh, maybe there are no atheists uh, on their deathbed either. I mean, it's uh, if you're ready to go into the next life with faith in the grand architect of the universe, well, God bless you. <laughs> See you later. Yeah. Um, here's a question. Okay. So I wanted to see how you would, and we were talking about this uh, question of Jewish ethnicity. Here's here's a bit of my family history. My family on my father's side goes back to Eastern Europe. Uh, Jews, as far as I know, my dad never, never bar mitzvah, never any of that, maybe stepped foot in a temple once or twice in his whole life. My mother is of Latin America descent from El Salvador, Catholic her whole life. Her, her grandparents and their grandparents have always been Catholics. I was baptized Catholic and I was raised Catholic. Am I still Jewish, as some people would say? No, absolutely not. Okay. Even if even if you hadn't been baptized, you wouldn't be Jewish because it com- it comes from the mother, not from the father. Right. So you you would be what they used to call a half Jew. So that was <laughs> that's that's what Barry Goldwater used to say. He ran for president. He said he right. was a half Jew, and that meant uh, he could only play nine holes on restricted golf courses. <laughs> That's great. I grew up playing golf and I did caddy at Jewish golf courses and I didn't know. So did I. By the way, yeah. so did I. I caddied at a Jewish golf course in Philadelphia. Okay. So I grew up on Long Island um, and there was, I caddied at one club called the Creek Club, which was North Shore, Long Island. Uh, very, very waspy, old money. And then there was another club called Engineers that was uh, very, very heavily Jewish and still North Shore. But I, I noticed that there was a difference in the way people acted as far as their wealth at the Creek Club than there was at Engineers. And I've also noticed that the older the people got, the meaner they were at Engineers, at the Jewish Club. So the older members were a little bit nicer at the Creek Club, the Wasps. I don't know what that means. It might not mean anything. Who knows? Um, Let's get into some questions that I had about World War II, Auschwitz, the Holocaust, the quote-unquote Holocaust, and my first one has to deal with something that you've spoken a lot about with uh, gas chambers. I read that, um, so you had it Auschwitz. Uh, this is what I read. I think it was like on holocaust.org or something like that. I, I don't know how truthful these places are. But I read something that said in Auschwitz, they tested Zyklon B on Soviet prisoners of war. And in ni- from 1943 to 1944, in these gas chambers, over 6,000 people were gassed daily. And that when I read that, that just jumps out at me because that doesn't seem like it's physically or even logistically possible. So what, what, what are your thoughts on hearing that? It, it's impossible. 
It's impossible. You can't do that many people in one day. There was an interesting experiment uh, with uh, artificial intelligence. So someone said to Chat GP, what's it called? Chat Chat GP, Chat whatever GP, it is. Yeah. Okay, so uh, uh, how many people die? How many people died in Auschwitz? Uh, what did they say about over two point seven million or something? Well, this some this the the, the, the this AI is programmed to say four million. Okay. Okay. So they so uh, what did they do with the bodies? They cremated them. Okay, we're going down the series of questions back and forth. Right. How long does it take to cremate a body? Uh, 12 hours, something like that. How many crematories did they have? Well, they had three. This is all true. They had ovens. Uh, so how long would it take to cremate uh, 4 million bodies? 87 years. So Chad GP, it turns out that Chad GPT is a Holocaust denier. Who knew? <laughs> uh, the, chat, the, the, the robot's probably an anti-Semite too. But no, this is not what's going on here. It's just that you, the logistics of it are literally I impossible. They can't. They cannot work. So is it just propaganda to make up numbers like that and to garner sympathy for the for the cause of modern day Jews throughout the world? Yes. Okay. I'm just. I'm just because we have to understand there were forced labor camps during the time of World War II in Poland and Germany, right? Like that. That's an obvious. Truth. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. But as far as death camps go, can you talk to us a little bit more about death camps? Like, was Auschwitz a death camp where people sent there to be purposefully killed and not used as labor at all? So what does the sign say over the entrance? Yeah, please tell me because I'm not at all that educated. Uh, does it say, Tod macht frei? No, that would be death makes you free. It says, Arbeit macht frei. Does so work? They were, work makes you free. So they were there to work. There were all kinds of factories around Auschwitz. Okay, the same thing, or basically all of the camps were in some sense or other uh, work camps. Okay. Um, uh, in my book, The Holocaust Narrative, I tried to track how this came about, so like step by step. It didn't happen overnight. We're talking about a narrative that has developed over basically 70 years uh, to, to this day. And, and the, the crucial camp that I talk about is, is Ordruf, which is the first camp that Eisenhower came across. So he shows up at Ordruf. Nobody talks about Ordruf anymore. And there are dead bodies all over the ground. Now, is that real? Uh, were they uh, crisis actors? No. Were they photoshopped in? No. There were actually dead bodies on the ground. That is a category of reality. Okay. Well, how did they die? Well, at this point, what you see is where you start to impose categories of the mind on this because categories of the mind have meaning. Categories of reality do not have meaning. Categories of mind have meaning. And so at this point, Eisenhower calls in congressmen, calls in the New York Times, and he says, we're going to show, explain to the American soldier what he's fighting for. Well, I guess the American soldier didn't know at that point because that's what Eisenhower said. Now, Eisenhower had his own baggage here. All of the Americans and all of the Soviets had their own baggage bringing into these camps because they were involved in war crimes. Mm. Uh, Eisenhower... Uh, basically let hundreds of thousands, <laughs> it, that's, I'm not getting to the numbers game, but basically refused to declare German soldiers prisoners of war, put them out on open air camps along the Rhine, which were called the Rhein-Wiesenlager, and he let them starve to death or die of exposure. Now, this is a war crime. You add to that the firebombing of Dresden, yeah. the firebombing of Hamburg, which were real holocaust, where you're burnt whole. whole Quite literally, thousands. yeah. 
Hundreds of thousands of uh, innocent women and children, refugees, were burnt whole with the firebombing of these. Add to that, now this is after the fact, but you add to that Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You add the behavior of the Soviet army with raping and pillaging all the way through, and you've got a lot of guilt here. And the way they dealt with the guilt is the classic Jewish way of dealing with guilt is projected onto the, the victim. And by this time in history, the Germans were the victims. They were the victims of the uh, absolutely uh, brutal, barbaric uh, war crimes uh, waged against the German people. It's that simple. And the Holocaust was created uh, in order to distract the world's attention from the crimes that the Allies were committing. That's very interesting. Now, would it? Here's a question because you brought up uh, Dresden and uh, Hamburg. Is it, would it, how is it fair of any Jewish person to criticize anyone who talks negatively, not even negatively about the Holocaust, but just anyone who brings up any questions and, and, and sort of doubting numbers or, or, or doubting what they say happened when there were plenty of Jews who were, I mean, not, I don't want to say complicit, but there are plenty of Jews who were involved, whether there would be soldiers or lawmakers, whoever involved in the war effort, when they were involved in bombings like Dresden and Hamburg and dropping the the atomic bombs in Japan. Isn't that kind of hypocritical? Yes. Uh, did you see the film Oppenheimer? Yes, I did. Well, that's basically Jews uh, getting together. They were hoping they could drop the bomb on Germany. Right. And there's that great speech where uh, Oppenheimer says, you know, I wish we could have dropped it on Germany. The Japanese didn't like it and everybody cheers. This was a Jewish project from beginning to end, the Manhattan Project. And I think that Christopher Nolan made a was making a criticism of the Jews oh, by really? talking by talking about how they were complicit in the in these war crimes. OK, what? Yeah. the the the, uh, the other point of this is this is all about uh, Jews as traitors. So you, you give these Jews um, asylum from the Third Reich. They come over here, and within minutes of getting over here, maybe that's an exaggeration, they're sending atomic secrets to the Soviet Union because that's where their, their loyalty is. It's to communism. It's not to the United States of America. That all comes out in that film. Well, here's another question. So Einstein uh, was barred from the Manhattan Project because of certain activism uh, history of his. Now, was he was was Einstein a communist sympathizer? I know he called himself a, a, an aggressive pacifist, but do you know why Einstein, who was you know self admittedly Jewish, even though he said he wasn't religious, though he still considers himself a Jew, do we know why he was barred from the Manhattan Project? He's too old, and he was irrelevant. The mm -hmm. main, the bit, the man, the real man behind this thing were, uh, was Werner Heisenberg. He was not a Jew. And he was in Germany. And there's a whole story about uh, Heisenberg trying to meet with Niels Bohr, uh, the Danish guy who was, th this was a club. Okay, right. nuclear physics at the beginning of the 20th century was an elite club. And they were on the verge of a tremendous breakthrough. And it was Heisenberg who, who was the, made the breakthrough. So they needed, uh, they needed Heisenberg's discovery uh, of basically quantum mechanics because what it meant was if you could you could move you could bump these whatever they were these proton uh, these these electrons up to a different orbit and you cause break the atom and cause the release of enormous amounts of energy 
that was that was Heisenberg. By by this time, Einstein was completely irrelevant. He had no had no real role to play in in creating the bomb. Oh, interesting. So another reason why I bring up Einstein is because there's this documentary on Netflix that I watched last night. I think it's called Einstein and the Bomb or something like that. Which is funny that you say that he wasn't involved because of how irrelevant he was. But this basically he, he it was an examination of his uh, sort of fleeing from Germany him staying in England and then ultimately coming to the United States. But there's one part in the movie where he talks about the the Buchenwald camps. And there's uh, there are videos, uh, old videos from these camps while he's talking because he's being played by this actor. And there are uh, skeletal jawbones that are there, all of the pairs of eyeglasses, all the pairs of shoes. Now, was Buchenwald a death camp or was it a work, work camp? And I'm still saying to myself, this seems like how do they how are they able to kill this many people? It just, it doesn't seem realistic. Okay. So the next camp down the road after Ordruf is Buchenwald. Mm-hmm. Eisenhower then calls General McClure in. He's heads of psychological warfare and said, we're going to have to do a show at Buchenwald. Uh, we're going to have all these congressmen. Uh, we're going to have all these reporters here. And on top of that, we're going to get 2,000 people. We're going to march 2,000 people out of Weimar, march them six miles down the road so that they can watch the show. So what's the show? We got C.D. Jackson, who was McClure's right-hand man, a Jew, who would have enormous influence in post-World War II America. He became Eisenhower's campaign manager. He was working simultaneously for the CIA and Time Life, which became the propaganda ministry of the CIA during this period of time. And so he puts on a show. So what's the show? A lampshade allegedly made out of Jewish skin. Uh, An ashtray made from a human pelvis, which he did hold up in the air. Okay, he did hold up. That's the show. And two shrunken heads. Wait a minute. Who said Germany? I lived in Germany. Nobody ever shrunk heads in Germany. It comes from the Amazon. They got it out of a museum. This is this is what they said. This is their testimony. And they had Billy Wilder there. Mm-hmm. The, the, who would go on to be famous, the famous Hollywood director, another Jew, his name was really Shmuel Wielder, who would direct uh, Marilyn Monroe and Some Like It Hot. He was there filming this thing, and it was so bad and so stupid, they 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 just ignored it. They they just decided, no, we're not gonna we're not gonna release it. So something came out. It was called what the that's the Americans. The British had their guy. It was Alfred Hitchcock, and their camp was uh, uh, Buchan. No, Bergen-Belsen. It was Bergen-Belsen. So that's in the British sector. They show up, and there are a lot of bodies there. I mean, there are trenches full of dead bodies. And they're not making this up. They were actually there. So why is that? Well, because it's overcrowded to begin with. And then all of the people, inmates at Auschwitz, including Elie Wiesel, uh, at least this is what he said, uh, were given the option of either staying there and being liberated by the Soviets or heading back, falling back to Bergen-Belsen to stay in the British zone. Well, they all left and went to Bergen-Belsen. So now you have about five times the amount of people that were the camp was built for, and they are dying like flies. Are they dying of typhus or what are they? Typhus. Of course they're dying of typhus. These are not, there was no gas chamber there. 
There was, it was, they were dying of typhus. If you put all these people, this many people in this type of crowded conditions, you blow up the, the supply routes where you, so you can't get food in, you blow up the railroad track, can't get the food in, you wreck the water supply so you can't get uh, decent food, you can't, uh, uh, you can't have decent sanitary facilities, you're going to get sick. Yeah. Typhus and typhoid killed all of these people. And the same thing was true of, of uh, uh, camps like uh, Dachau. Right. That that's what happened. So okay, uh, Alfred Hitchcock says yes. Okay, I'm coming, but he doesn't like to fly, so he's got to get on the train in Los Angeles, take it to New York, hop on a ship, and then sail over. And by the time he gets there, uh, wait a minute, the bodies uh, we've already buried them, so they have to stage something with new bodies. I go into this in the, my book, the Holocaust narrative, and they come up with this film called Death Mills. And they won't release it <laughs> because the the MI five people say, "Look, it, it it's going to boomerang. It's going to backfire on us. It's not going to tell the story." So they never release it. Oh wow! So the, the, these this is the beginning of this of this narrative. It began as propaganda films, uh, and then it took on a life of its own. Because what are you doing? You're dragging Hollywood into this. You need mm -hmm. Hollywood. Both Billy Wilder and Alfred Hitchcock are both from Hollywood. Yeah. And Hollywood basically took over this narrative and ran with it. It was all Jews in Hollywood, and they created the Holocaust narrative out of this. But I mean, it's so interesting because you go back to, you know, you go back to the Civil War, and a lot of people say, well, the Civil War was fought over slavery, and then people think that they're these gallant Union soldiers who are fighting to free slaves, and that couldn't be further from the truth. We know that, you know, the 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 the, the common soldier of the Union Army couldn't give a rip about slavery. Right. So it's just what sort of effect did Hollywood want to have on the American people or even the troops? Would they say to themselves, oh, we're now we're fighting for the for the liberation of Jews for from death camps in Germany? Like, I, did they try to uh, sway public opinion in that way? No, the first result was Israel. Mm -hmm. We have the, the founding of Israel that would not have taken place without the sympathy that the Holocaust narrative had generated. Uh, and uh, so everyone was favorably disposed uh, toward the creation of the state of Israel as payback for the suffering that they endured uh, during World War II. So that was the first benefit of, of this. Um, you can go back before that. What happened here is that after the war is over, all the Jews that ran away, they all came back and they all hate themselves because they were cowards. And now they're looking for vengeance. And the Nuremberg trials are an example of that vengeance against mm. defenseless Germans. Defenseless Germans. 70% uh, of the lawyers at the Nuremberg trials were Jewish. And you had groups like uh, Nachum. I cover this in the book. Uh, they're going to uh, poison everybody in Nuremberg. No, I, everybody. I, heard, I heard about that. I heard about that. Yeah. 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 And uh, not only that, I mean, oh, wait a minute. This is a canard. Uh, this is an anti-Semitic canard to say that Jews poison wells in the Middle Ages. Well, no, not only is it not a canard here, the Jews made a movie about this. It's called Plan Plan B. Oh, really? Plan B. Why would a Jew make a movie about poisoning the well at, Nure at Nuremberg? I don't know. I have. Why would the? I, I know why the Bavarian government subsidizes this movie because it makes the Jews look bad. And I suppose they, all the Bavarians laughed after the Jews cashed the check. Uh, uh, Wait, was I that so that was a recent movie? This Plan B? Yeah, yeah. So I did, 
within the 2000s. If you read the book, you'll find the exact date. All the details are in the book. I've forgotten most of the details about that. But yeah, it's recent. I mean, I'd say uh, 2014, sometime around that time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, what were they thinking? Moisha, what are you thinking? You think this makes Jews look good? That they're poisoning innocent women and children? But this is what has continued to this day. So what do you have now? You have Israelis committing genocide in Gaza. Mm-hmm. And what are they saying? They are saying, I'm not, I'm not making this up. It was in the American, I believe it was the American conservative, uh, where they said basically, all those people in Dresden, those women and children, they were guilty because people in Dresden voted for Hitler. And because we have established that fact, now we can say all those people in Gaza that have died, those innocent women and children that died in the buildings that were bombed by uh, American F-16s, they're all guilty too. And they deserve to die because people in Gaza voted for Hamas. This is the type of crazy, uh, immoral, barbaric thinking that is now determining our foreign policy. Yeah. And it goes right back to the Holocaust. Is it just the the sort of the, the clouds of war that um, there's a series Masters of the Air. I don't know if you're watching it uh, at all. It's on Apple. It's about the uh, 100th bomb group of the 8th Air Force. And just in this last episode, there is the bombing raid to Bremen. I don't know if you've heard about this, bo- this, bom- this bombing raid. Uh, one guy, I think it's a navigator. I can't remember. He goes up and they say, we're going to bomb a city. We're not bombing a factory. We're not doing any of that. But now we're bombing a city where our main navigational point is this cathedral. And the guy says, I'm not dropping bombs on people coming out of church. And they said, well, what are we going to do? It's war. They're going to you know, kill our guys. And the guy's having this really like existential crisis. And I'm wondering about this. My grandfather was a navigator at B-17. I'm wondering if he had any moral qualms about you know, dropping bombs on civilians. How do you think, do you think any of these guys thought about that at all? Especially like let's being a Catholic, you know, we, we can't, uh, through our conscience, uh, kill innocents. No, it's a sin. It's a mortal sin. Uh, and you, if you don't repent of this moral sin, you'll go to hell and spend eternity in hell as punishment for the sin you committed. Any killing innocent women and children, targeting civilians is a war crime and it's a sin. And that's precisely what the Americans were involved in. And that's why they needed the Holocaust to devote, to, to distract everyone's attention from that fact. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I people, a, a, a Polish guy wrote to me and said, my father, my uncle was involved in the firebombing of Dresden and he never felt guilt about it at all. I said, well, your uncle's a psychopath. He should be, he should be locked up because yeah. if you don't feel guilt about that, there's something wrong with you. That yeah. that's precisely what has happened. That is the, I mean, basically, we're committed uh, to this policy of war crimes. What do you think is going on in, in Yemen right now? Yeah, they can't. They what? It goes back to right after the war, right, right at the beginning of the war. The English, no, it was before the war. I think it was nineteen twenties, thirties, something like that, where they did a study about aerial bombardment. The English were the first to do get involved in this. Yeah. And they found out that uh, aerial bombardment is completely ineffective against military targets. It doesn't work at all. Most of the bombs don't even come near the target. Uh, and when they do, if it's hardened, they can't do any damage. 
So at that point, they decided, well, we're going to go after civilian targets in Germany because it's very densely populated. Yeah. Well, this is this is a, this is Bomber Harris. This is a war crime from the very beginning, and we as as Catholic Americans have somehow been uh, 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 supposed to have been brainwashed into thinking that there was nothing wrong with this. We had this discussion with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The same thing happened. I forget which. I think it was Nagasaki where the target was the it's cathedral, church, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's that's where they were uh, coming to, and when they saw that, they dropped the bomb. That was a Catholic city. Yeah, I heard. Or there uh, were a lot of Catholics there. Yeah, I heard a conspiracy theory that Nagasaki was picked specifically because it was the most Catholic uh, area in in Japan or something like that. I can't remember. Um, but uh, what was the question I was going to? Oh, do you think that's why? I mean, America uh, went against the British uh, as far as bombings were concerned because America was doing daylight bombings. They had the Norton bomb site, which they said was you know the most accurate bomb site in the world. Do you think? Do you think that still? Not that it made it okay, but do you think that was a better route than the British doing these nighttime bombings and just killing people indiscriminately, regardless of military or civilian targets? No, you're just talking about the means. The end is the same if you're destroying civilian targets. I, I lived in a town. The turn, town I lived in in Germany was right on the Rhine. It had no military significance whatsoever. Mm. Uh, they were they The Allies dropped leaflets on that bomb late in the war told everybody to evacuate, and they came by and simply destroyed the entire town for no reason. Now, I'm glad they dropped leaflets. I hope everybody got out in time. But this uh, this is was I think they just had too many bombs, didn't know what to do with them. We got to keep these guys busy. Right. There was no reason for that at all. Now, it wasn't a horrendous war crime like uh, Dresden or Hamburg, but it was an indication of the, this kind of policy. Now, that has to be combined with the basically the policy of the Air Force at that point, which was to shoot anything that moved. And so if these these fighters would go over, and if there's a boy, a schoolboy, trying to ride his bicycle to school, they would kill him. Yeah. I talked to Germans who said, anytime you heard an airplane, you ran and jumped in the ditch. I have another uh, German friend whose, aunt, whose mother and aunt had escaped from uh, the east, uh, from Hungary. They made it safety to Austria. They're up in a castle. There's a street there. As far as you can see, they're refugees with horse-drawn carriages and so on and so forth. And suddenly, uh, uh, they, the American plane, the fighter plane comes over and strafes this entire column of refugees. And the, the, the mother told this guy that there was blood running in the streets, in the gutters, as if during a thunderstorm. This is the type of thing we need to talk about, okay, yeah. because these are war crimes, and we are not, with the legacy of these war crimes is the war crimes that are now being committed in Gaza. Do you, what would you say, now, I, I'm an ignorant person, so when I'm hearing uh, a, a quote-unquote hol Holocaust survivor talking about these camps and then talking about gas chambers, you know, what, do you, is it the right right thing to just say, you know, oh, well, I don't believe you because, you know, the, the evidence doesn't add up. You know, all, all these ovens or, or the amount of people that were killed just doesn't make any sense. Is it even worth it to just say, I don't believe you, you're lying about it? Or, you know, how do you, how are you able to have a conversation with people who claim that they were there or had relatives that were wiped out? Like, what's the best way to do that? Well, first of all, you have to deal with the history of the Holocaust narrative. And a, a crucial turning point at this in this narrative came in the 1980s when the Canadian government put Aaron Zundel on trial. And at this point, they had to drag people onto the 
the witness stand and they had to swear an oath that they were telling the truth. And at that point, Raoul Hilberg, the, the dean of Holocaust, uh, Holocaust Jewish historians said he couldn't back up the claims. He wouldn't, he wasn't able to back up these claims on uh, under oath. Well, at that point, they had to change plan. And what happened is that uh, 1992, which is about four years after the last trial, Debbie Lipstadt decides, well, we're not going to talk about it anymore. We're going to make it a crime to talk about it. And so she created this crime called Holocaust denial. Mm-hmm. And, and they pushed it through a lot of countries in Europe, uh, most of the countries in Europe. How, okay. does that, how does that happen? How, how can you be arrested and thrown in jail for saying, it just doesn't sound plausible? Well, good question. Good question. <laughs> you're talking about Jewish power in Germany. That's basically what you're talking about. And that's a story uh, unto, unto itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. It gets even better. It gets even better. So Debbie Lipstadt is promoting this book called uh, Fragments by a man by the name of Benjamin, uh, Benjamin Vilkomirsky. Now, this guy is claiming he was a Jewish child from Latvia who was in a concentration camp. Okay, and the memoir, she, Debbie Lipstadt is saying, this is the new night. This is the success. This is a Holocaust classic. Well, that means if you deny this, that's Holocaust denial, right? Isn't it? Doesn't that make sense? Okay, well, wait a minute. It turns out there is no Benjamin Vilkomirsky. It turns out that the guy who claims this is not a Jew. He's not from Latvia. He's a guy from Switzerland. Uh, who was an orphan and was adopted by this family, grew up in in a a kind of wealthy situation. Well, now, wait a minute. We can't deny this because it was on 60 Minutes. 60 Minutes kind of interviewed the guy, and they caught him red-handed and blew up the Vilkomirsky narrative, blew it up. Well, what about the people who could have gone to jail for Holocaust denial because Debbie Lipstadt said it was true and part of the Holocaust era? You could have gone to jail for denying something that never happened. Wasn't there a woman who was recently, there was this Netflix special made about her where she, she I don't know if she escaped from Nazis, but she was raised by wolves or something in the yeah. forest and then talked Misha, about it. Yeah. Misha, Misha DiFonesco. Great story. Incredible story. So her parents are dragged off to Auschwitz. She's in Belgium. And she decides, I'm going to walk 900 miles across Europe and liberate my parents from from, uh, Auschwitz. And she's only nine years old. I mean, think of this. This is a great story. And not only that, she's adopted by a pack of wolves. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is unbelievable. What a story. Well, it is unbelievable. It never happened. Her name is not Misha DiFonesco. It's Monique DeVale. She's not Jewish. And it turns out she's got this troubled history because her father was a collaborator and nobody liked her in Belgium because her father was a collaborator. So she goes off into this fantasy world and every the, the, the French made a movie about it. Right. Well, what was that Holocaust denial? I mean, this, this I'm saying this is what happened. The turning point came around the same time that... Um, Debbie Lipstock created Holocaust Denial. This is the time when uh, Steven Spielberg shows up in Poland to do Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. And he, as soon as he shows up, the people line up around the block and they're saying, I got to tell you my story. I got to tell you my story. And Spielberg obviously can't get the film done if everybody, every Jew in Poland wants to tell the story. So he creates the Shoah Foundation. Right. And the Shoah Foundation now will take any Jew and you can tell what story, you know, you can say whatever you want. 
and they will videotape it and they'll archive it in the Shoah Foundation. Well, this is what created Vilkomirsky. This is what created Misha and the Wolves because there's now uh, you went, we don't talk to people like Raoul Hilberg anymore. We don't talk to people who are historians because basically he couldn't he couldn't testify under oath to what uh, what really happened. So now we go into the realm of personal testimony, and anything goes, and that's how where these st- other stories came from. Anybody right. can say anything. So they t- the couple, you know, they go on Oprah and she threw an apple over to me in Auschwitz and I ate the apple and I survived. And then I bumped into her in Coney Island and we got married. And there was, and so Oprah's listening and there's not a dry eye in the audience except, oh, wait a minute, he made it up. It goes even further than that. Tony Blinken, mm-hmm. our secretary of state, says my stepfather was in uh, in the woods and he saw this tank. And he he goes over and he says to the God bless America. And this black guy comes out and he picks him up and picks him into. He says he was put in the tank uh, into America and into freedom. Well, that's a touching story, Tony, but it never happened because the only black tank battalion it was in Italy. Seven hundred sixty first. No, it was it was uh, it never came near Dachau. It was never near the woods in Bavaria where you said it was. It couldn't have happened. Now they tried this once before. They did NP NP or no PBS did a um, a documentary called Liberators, and this time they claimed that the seven sixty first liberated Dachau. Well, that's that's a tremendous story. I mean, the, the Jews and the blacks are hugging each other, uh, uh, but it never happened because they were nowhere near Dachau. They never right. came near Dachau. So you've got this type of constant invention of these fictions, these apocryphal stories, in order to justify, to keep the Holocaust going because the Jews benefit from the Holocaust. Think of all the money they've they've shaken down from the German government right. over these past over these past 70 years. So you're not you're not saying that these camps never existed. You're not saying that there weren't uh, a, a very large number of people who died in these camps. Uh, you're saying that the craziest stories that have come out of these camps that have been pushed as sort of propaganda to garner sympathy for the Jewish people and for the creation of, let's say, like the state of Israel, these 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 con- these things that happened were proven to be false. They never happened, and they only happened because of the propaganda effort. But you're not denying that these camps did exist, and a lot of people died in them, and no, not I- only Jews, Catholics. Well, uh, yeah, okay. So now we come to one of the crucial parts of this story. And I'm talking about Dachau. Mm-hmm. Now, Dachau, when I was a child, my, my father's best friend showed me pictures of Dachau because he was with Patton's army and they liberated Dachau. And I remember the pictures of the bodies and so on and so forth. Yeah. Okay, Dachau was the first camp. It was created in 1933, right after Hitler came to power. It was the paradigmatic camp. And the main group of people in Dachau were Catholics because they were considered the main opposition to Hitler at the beginning of the Third Reich. Yeah. So it, it involved, they had thousands of priests, they had bishops there, they had a, a liturgical cycle that was going on in this place. And uh, this this narrative, it was written up, there a priest who wrote memoirs, Father Lentz, an Austrian priest, uh, wrote a memoir called Christus in Dachau, which I read. Okay. Oh, I think I think I have that book. I think I, 
waiting to read it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's an English translation called Christ in Dachau that has just been a new translation just been brought out. Okay. So what I'm what I'm saying here is it's not just that there's a an element of falsification here. I'm saying that this narrative got hijacked. Mm-hmm. Lenz's book came out in 1955, and that was the locus classicus of this story. Okay, and that had a meaning to it. Its meaning is basically uh, Germany was being punished for the sin of atheism. The priests were called, because it's a spiritual drama, to expiate the sin of atheism through their suffering. They suffered mercilessly up until 19, Assumption Day, 1942. And then the, the word came down to not punish them anymore. They needed them for working. And they were all spared by God's grace. Now, that is the story. And the point of this story is that there's meaning to suffering. And God's in charge. Well... Yeah. That got hijacked by Elie Wiesel's Night, which came out. Elie Wiesel did not write that book. It was written by Francois Mauriac. He wrote a memoir in Yiddish, which was full of all sorts of uh, unpleasant stuff like raping German girls. The Jews were raping German girls, that type of stuff. Mauriac was a Catholic, eliminated all that, wrote elegant French. He had won the Nobel Prize. And at that point, the Jews hijacked the narrative, hijacked the story of what happened in those camps. Elie Wiesel now is saying, what's the message of Dachau? What's the message of Auschwitz? Auschwitz has replaced Dachau as the paradigmatic camp. What is the lesson of Dachau? I'm sorry, Auschwitz. God died at Auschwitz. This becomes propaganda for atheism, which is 100% the opposite of what the Catholics were saying about what happened in Dachau. That's the story. That's an important story, especially for us Catholics. And that story needs to get out because we are victims of identity theft. Yeah, well, there's there's a great movie coming out called Triumph of the Heart that I think that you should check out. It's about uh, Maximilian Kolbe, St. Maximilian Kolbe's life and his, uh, his martyrdom at Auschwitz. Uh, but I think, hold on one second, because you're right there and you can talk about anything you want to talk about for a second. But I think I have that book over there. It's this John Lenz, right? The Christ in Dachau. Right. That's, is that the Sophia Press? Uh, is that is... the Sophia Press? Yes. Yeah. Okay. They just brought it out. Yeah. You can read it in English. I read it. I read the German version, but, but you can read it in English. The big surprise after the Holocaust narrative came out was the, the white boys, the Nazis claiming this is all false. They, they are furious at me because I said there's a Catholic narrative here that has been suppressed. The, the irony here is that the Jews and the white boys, the Jew boys and the white boys are basically in total agreement about the narrative. And both of their narratives excludes Catholic suffering from, right. from the story. Well, let's let's talk about Catholicism a little bit. And we're going to start off with a question from from Twitter. I asked this guy if he wanted to sort of expand on his question, but he said no. And I said, fair. He just asked to ask you thoughts on St. Michael, the archangel. Okay, we're talking. I don't know what he must have known about. Okay, do, do I have to talk about angels? God created angels. They are rational creatures without bodies. Uh, these angels, because they are rational creatures, they have to. They can make a choice, and the choice that they had to make was to serve God or not serve God. Mm-hmm. And the 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 this led to. Battle. Now, we're getting a little bit anthropomorphic here. Yes. Okay, because angels 
cannot uh, do battle, uh, but St. Michael, they don't have bodies. It's hard to imagine how they're going to do battle. But anyway, St. Michael always has a sword. And he was the one who fought the other side. And the other side, the leader of the other side was the bad angels. And that was Satan, mm -hmm. who used to be called Lucifer. And yeah. so uh, at the end of the 19th century, Pope Leo XIII had this vision of things going to go bad in the 20th century. And I think it was uh, God, it was like right out of the book of Job, God, the devil says, uh, let me tempt everybody. And so God allows, gives the devil the 20th century or something like that. Anyway, Saint um, uh, po uh, Pope Leo XIII wrote the St. Michael prayer yeah. in response to that vision. It's favorite prayer. We pray it every night uh, before we go to bed. We, we pray it every night too. And it came back in church. He used to it say did. it at the end of mass. And then there was a long time when he didn't say it. And it kind of spontaneously came back. So now everyone says it after mass now. Yeah, we say it after Mass. This is something interesting. I don't know if you've heard of it, but but I attend a Latin Novus Ordo Mass. Okay. Just thought I'd throw that in there, and we say it at the end of Mass. Um, here, Here's another question, because I wanted to get a little bit into theology, and I have this debate and this argument. It gets really tiresome about uh, the Catholic relationship with uh, the Queen of Heaven and our glorious Mother Mary. And they say, they say, Mary cannot be an intercessor. Mary cannot hear you. She can't bring your prayers and I always ask them this question. I always ask the Protestants this question. I always ask, uh, let's say, the, the, the agnostics this question. I said, well, can the devil tempt humans? And they say, yes, the, dev the devil has tempted humans all throughout history. I said, okay, so the devil can speak to us. He can whisper in our ears, but God's mother can't hear us. Is that what you're saying? And they're saying, yes. How do you feel about that? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. I, look, I, I have to look. I just did a review of a book by um, a Frenchman, Emmanuel Tote. The book is La Défaite de l'Occident, The Defeat of the West. Uh, it's not in English, so you have to read in French. But basically, the thesis of this book is that uh, the American empire is collapsing because the hidden grammar of the American empire is Protestantism, and Protestantism has evaporated. Yes. Uh, I, this, this substantiates a thesis that I've been saying for a long time. The, the Protestantism had a 500-year run. It has evaporated. Now, whether you, I know Protestants over there, they go to that church over there, but as a force, first of all, there are no Protestant countries anymore because they, they're official. They are not the state religion in Scandinavia or in England anymore. Yeah. That's a sign. There are no big Protestant leaders anymore of the sort we had in the 1980s. Remember like people like Jerry Falwell and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's evaporated. And I think that uh, this is part of what we need to do is say, uh, you know, the fact that this is evaporate is causing violence all throughout America because that was the form of America. I think I agree with Tote in his analysis of that. Uh, but now there's no form, so people don't know how to act. Well, we have to make this transition uh, back to the church that the Protestants broke with. It was a mistake from the beginning. It was a looting operation from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, it had it run because it took a lot of patrimony out of the church. It's evaporated. It's not there anymore. And so we have to, you, this is the type of craziness that's coming up now, the type of thing you're hearing from people, because there's no, there's basically no organized Protestantism anymore. The yeah. mainline, the mainline denominations are all just promoting LGBT stuff. Uh, and the evangelicals 
Well, they're all over the place. Most of the only unity I can see among evangelicals is Christian Zionism, right, which is worse right. worse than what the mainstream media are promoting. Yeah, I, I think, I, the mainstream churches, I mean. Right. I think I think Anglicans are probably at least Anglicans in America are starting to wake up a little bit. It's kind of it's, it's almost kind of like oxymoronic to be an American Anglican. It's kind of weird. Um, I think a, a good example of that is Tucker Carlson. Right. Yeah, and, sure. Uh, Tucker Carlson has a completely ironic view of the Episcopal Church, which he is technically part of. It's mm-hmm. completely ironic. Whenever he mentions this, he kind of rolls his eyes. Well, that substantiates what I'm saying here. Right. You know, uh, I mean, uh, it's dead. It's yeah. it's not going to inspire people. Why anymore. even Why even identify as an Episcopalian if you don't even believe in it or want to be a part That's of right. it? That's right. That's a good yeah. question. Ask Have Tucker on your show and ask him that question. That'd be great. Maybe one day. I don't know. It, it might happen. Um, here, we got a, a couple more questions. Um, and here's a... I hate thoughts. I, I used to have this other show with a co-host, and when we would have questions submitted with us, our co-host used to say, if you use the word or frame a question with thoughts, it'd be thrown out. Um, but this, this person wants to know, thoughts on lay theologians? I don't know the context of his question. I don't. You don't, you don't have to be a priest to be a theologian. Right. There's no intrinsic contradiction there. If you're talking about the the... The problem here is uh, you've got a kind of quasi-Protestant uh, yeah. clerisy now right. uh, because of the internet. Right. And right. so you got people who are all want to be Pope. Uh, John Henry Weston, LifeSite News, he wants to be Pope. He wants to be the new Pope. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Taylor Marshall, I've, I've named. Now we got Bishop Strickland, uh, who is a, a on his own, uh, now commenting on every other bishop in the country, condemning me. I'm not in Tyler, Texas. If he were in Tyler, Texas, he'd have a focus for his activity. Now he's a loose cannon uh, commenting on everything. If that's what you're talking about, yeah, that, that's a problem. It was created by the internet. Uh, oh, yeah, maybe, just, he, maybe he is talking about late Catholic theologians. I don't know. I don't know what I did. It, the term itself is not contradictory self-contradictory but if he could contextualize that i can see the problem that he's talking about right i mean when i think of theologians especially modern day ones i think i do think of people i mean i think of people like uh taylor marshall or trent horn or uh uh david and um david who used to work for uh the catholic militant david uh anyway i forget his name but i i was having this thought similar to what you are now because I'm part of that Catholic community on Twitter and I just want to separate myself from it because it's people who are arguing with each other over the most ridiculous things. Trad Catholics versus these other types of Catholics who are traditional, but they're not trad in this way where they're not necessarily going to TLM masses. But now they're the SSPX who, if you're not going to an SSPX mass, then you're not even a real cat. It's just all. And I just I don't have time for it. I have someone said to me, oh, this guy's a Novus Ordo Catholic. What does that even mean? I, it, it, well, I'll tell you what it means. It means the person who said it is a schismatic, and no mm-hmm. one is talking about schism because that crowd we just mentioned has no enemies to the right. It's a political faction that is preying on people with itching ears, uh, women, silly women obsessed with their sins who want to feel superior <laughs> to the real Catholic Church. Yeah, that's not me. I don't call me a male chauvinist. It's uh, Saint Paul in the letter to Timothy. He talks about silly women obsessed with their sins will bring call teachers to themselves 
who will basically back up what they want to hear, tell them what they want to hear. What I'm seeing though now, which is something that I do see a little bit of optimism in, in my Latin Nova Sordo Mass, which I think I'm going to actually have my priest on the show next week so he can talk to people about the history of the Latin Nova Sordo. And the way I interpret it is I think that was the Mass that was the intention of Vatican II, that it wanted to be a little bit more palatable to to the people in the United States, uh, but it's still Latin and it's in the vernacular of you know wherever the Mass is being taken place, but it's still beautiful. It's still reverent. And I think with Protestantism being so uh, being so influential, still I think in America it's it's dying a little bit, but there is influence because if you go to a lot of Novus Ordo masses, and I don't have a problem with them, but you get those influences. You still hear those hymns that were written by Protestants, and a little bit of the mass can be taken away by the show of guitars and violins and stuff like that. But what I see some optimism is in my mass, people are just getting younger. The families are bigger and they're younger. And then there are a lot of people who are going there by themselves, younger people. And uh, I don't know, that gives me a cause for some optimism. How do you feel about Catholicism in in, in the state of America today? Uh, that's great uh, if, if, if you stay in the church. Yeah. But the Latin Mass can be a gateway out of the church. There are people, the, the crisis came with uh, uh, Tradicionis Custodis. You know, if they ban the uh, Latin mass in your diocese. Now, I, they didn't ask me to do this. I'm not in charge. Uh, I know who did it. It was a guy who, Thomas Reese, who wrote an article in uh, uh, America saying they should ban the Latin mass. The Pope's a Jesuit. Apparently, he did it. Okay. I'm not going to jump ship because the Pope did that. Right. Okay. Because if I jump ship, I'll end up having to be have Taylor Marshall as my Pope. And I don't want that. I prefer I prefer the guy in Rome any day of the week over Taylor Marshall or or Timothy Gordon or or any of these self appointed popes. Okay, right. because the main issue here is unity, and the main problem with the Latin Mass is disunity. It's mm-hmm. disunity because there are people now. Anytime you hear someone say Novus Ordo Catholic, you're talking to someone who's in schism or heading toward the door. Even yeah. even with approved Latin masses and stuff like the uh, not the SSPX but the P is it the FSSP uh, right F- right I'm not talking about the FSSP I'm talking about people who use the term Novus Ordo as some indication that you if you don't go to the Latin mass you're a second class Catholic right sorry sorry I'm not going there yeah and, and I'm not going to go along with this type of bullying. Okay, you're not a first-class Catholic or somehow special because you go to the Latin Mass. If you think you are, you're heading out the door. Right. And it's it's our duty as fellow Catholics to keep these people in the church. Now, I've said this before, but uh, there is a passage in the gospel where Jesus Christ is asleep in the boat. And the storm is getting worse, and the apostles are getting more and more nervous, and they'll finally they wake Greg and wake him up and say, Don't you care? We're all going to die. That boat is the church. And the storms are the, the, the troubles that the devil uses to assail the church. And the one thing you don't want to do is jump out of the boat during a storm because that's instant death, because there is no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. And you being an ultra-Catholic in schism doesn't matter how old your Latin Mass is. If you're outside of the church, you cannot be saved. 
this is St. Augustine. Don't argue with me. Read St. Augustine's treatise on the, on the Donatists. They were the schismatics of his day. It was a Judaizing sect that didn't want contamination. I've listened to Bishop Williamson, you know, a guy I like. I met with mm-hmm. him. He says the church has tuberculosis. And if we associate with the people in the church, we will get tuberculosis. That is classic schismatic thinking. He's outside of the church because he thinks of them. Now he's outside of the SSPX. You know, Bishop yeah. Felley said the same thing. Church has cancer. This is bad medicine in addition to being bad theology. If we associate with the church, we will be contaminated. This is Jewish thinking. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Donatists were a Judaizing schismatic sect at the time of St. Augustine. This is not Catholic. And I don't care how many Latin masses you go to, you're not going to make up in quantity what you lost in quality by by engaging in sins against charity. Augustine said, if you lack charity, you cannot be saved. The prime example of lack of charity is refusal to associate with fellow members of the Catholic Church. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, to me, it's never mattered which mass anyone went to. I mean, obviously it matters if you're going to like an SSPX uh, mass and, you know, if they're in schism, that's probably not the best idea, but I- It's a bad idea. Yeah, it's a bad idea. But, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I left the church for 20 years, but growing up Catholic and Catholic schools, Catholic university my whole life, I, there was a period of time, which I do regret now in a way, but a friend of mine saying, you have nothing to regret it. You're back in the church. Don't regret that. Um, but- there was, there was obviously there, this draw to tradition that I think a lot of, I'm not young, I'm almost 40, but there's a draw to tradition that I think a lot of younger men now are experiencing where a lot of young Protestant men are now uh, discerning Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christianity and then traditional Catholicism. Do you think, do you think that there, there's anything worthwhile in the sort of, um, in the midst of this tradition that people are being drawn to? Like, can that be used for good? Of course it can. Of course it can. <laughs> but the problem is it can be used for evil as well. Yeah. And I had, I'll go back a couple decades, okay, when the big battle was Medjugorje. And I wrote a book right. against uh, Medjugorje. Uh, and everybody hated me. I mean, I lost, I lost thousands of subscribers. Uh, but now uh, I'm glad I did it. Uh, but anyway, at that point I said, is the rosary a good thing? Oh, yeah, it's a good thing. Can you follow the rosary out of the church? Well, yeah, you can. Well, then it's a bad thing. Mm. Is the Bible a good thing? Of course the Bible's a good thing. Well, what if you follow the Bible out of the church? Then it's the, the, the Bible is not doesn't change. It's right. always going to be a good thing, but you're turning it into a bad thing because you're leaving the church. That's known as Protestantism. Right. That's what they did. So there's nothing wrong with the Bible, but if you follow it out of the church, you're committing a sin. Well, now we're at the Latin Mass. Is the Latin Mass a good thing? Yes, of course, the Mass is always a good thing. If you follow it out of the church, that's a bad thing. And that's exactly what the SSPX has done. They follow this out of the church. And when Ratzinger tried to bring them back, I met with Bishop Williamson. He said, you know, went to Wimbledon, all the way to England to meet with them. I said, it's time to add the schism. He said to me, he didn't deny they were in schism. He said, I have a letter on my desk. And he said, uh, 
uh, it says, I accept Vatican II in light of tradition. I said, well, go up and sign it, and then we'll talk about tennis. Well, he couldn't <laughs> sign it because he's in schism, wow. because his mind has been darkened by this sin. And now, uh, I mean, you know, he's not even in the SSPX. It's had the same fragmenting uh, effect that Protestantism has had. Can you talk about, uh, can you sum up for people who don't know uh, the, the Magigoria in, in like a minute or so? Because I was, I was interested when you say, is the rosary a bad thing? Like, no, but can you use it to follow it out of the church? I just wanted to hear you talk about that just a little bit more. Yeah, the best thing you can do, I, I'd be happy to, but a minute's too short. Okay. I have a book called The Medjugorje Deception. You can go to Culture Wars, uh, I'm sorry, to, you can go to culturewars.com or you can go to fidelitypress.org and you can buy a copy of that book and you will understand the whole bad theology and why it's a bad thing and how it can hurt you if you buy that book. It's called The Medjugorje Deception. If you go to the same website, you can also buy the Holocaust narrative, which is what you started off talking about. Right. So Medjugorje began as kids getting caught doing something in Bosnia, uh, and then they lied about it, and then they got in trouble, and then the priest, two Franciscans, stepped in and took it over and used it because the Franciscans were in a battle with the local bishop about who was going to control these parishes. Mm -hmm. And from there, it morphed into basically, it got adopted by the uh, CIA. What? As part of the anti-communist crusade, uh, I wrote a letter to the CIA Freedom of Information Act, uh, got 20 pages of documents about the CIA's involvement with Medjugorje. Uh, 19 and three quarters of them were blacked out. Oh, and then they, they had the, the gall to send me a bill. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote a letter back and say, I am not paying your bill. So I stiffed the CIA. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. I lived to tell the tale. Stiffed the CIA and lived to tell the tale. So, so, so Medjugorje was just, uh, they, they claimed it was Marian apparitions, right? Is it supposed to have been like the, 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 the closest thing in most recent modern history to something like Fatima? It was based pretty much on Lourdes, yeah. Okay. Uh, but the, the kids didn't know, they didn't know anything. They, they said the most preposterous stuff when they were interviewed by Bishop Zonich, the first bishop to interview him, but he, he spoke, their language spoke, Serbo-Croatian. He said, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm out of here. And at that point, uh, all of these people who are holier than the Catholic Church, all these, if you're, there were ever a case of silly women obsessed with their sins, it was Medjugorje. And I'm telling you from personal experience, I'm on the plane out of Dubrovnik and I got one lady on one side and one lady on the other side. And they're both going out of their way to tell me one more out, one's more outrageous sins than the other's outrageous sins. And th they were coming to Medjugorje for some reason instead of just going to the confessional. And the lady next to me had eye damage because she looked into the sun. This is the type of hysteria that was going on at that time. And I think, I say it in the book, read the book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but basically, I think it was a reaction to feminism. Oh, okay. So these apparitions were never approved by the church, right? Or, or, or not, were they? No. Okay. They were okay. condemned by both Bishop Zonich and his successor, Bishop Parrish, and I interviewed both of these people. Why do why do a lot of Catholics, it seems, especially like a lot of the more quote unquote traditionals and ones in schism? Obviously, we know the answer, but why do they why do they hate Francis so much? I mean, just outwardly hate. And what's the, what's with this problem with the Jesuits? I've been here. Oh well, he's Jesuit, so I I, I don't understand it. 
Well, first of all, the Jesuits are a real problem. <laughs> this is the okay. category of reality. We're not making this up. They right. have serious problems. A homosexual cabal has taken over the Jesuits. It's that simple, especially if you're talking about American Jesuits. I know is, this- Is Father James Martin a Jesuit? Of course he is. Yes, okay. of course he is. Okay. Uh, so if you ask him, he won't tell you whether he's a homosexual or not because he says a spiritual advisor told him not to. But he's certainly doing a lot to promote it. He's yep. the foremost Catholic promoter of homosexuality in the world. And he can get an audience with Pope Francis anytime he wants. Well, that's scandalous. What is the Catholic response to a Protestant saying, oh, well, you know, if, if Catholicism is the truth, how can you have a, a pope like Francis to 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 basically appease and to normalize homosexuality, which he, I don't think he's ever done. I, he's never done that. So I always call that out. But when you have priests like Martin who are just blatantly doing it, I mean, what's the best way a Catholic could say, listen, I mean, this isn't a represent representation of the church, even though the guy is, is frocked. You know, he's not he's not defrocked this uh, this this Martin. So, I mean, I, I never this know. Is the called, this is called this is called clericalism. Mm hmm. Father Martin always wears the Roman collar because he's always involved in the subversion of the church's teaching on sexuality. And so you can have, a, 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 there were people, I, I think this was the problem in Ireland. If, the, if Father said it, it must be true. Well, I mean, I'm sure you should give the priest the benefit of the doubt, but that's not the way the Catholic Church works. And it doesn't work that way with the Pope either. The Pope is infallible under certain conditions when he talks about faith, solemn proclamations of faith and moral, uh, morals at cathedral. You can also go to Luton Gentium, paragraph 25, about the ordinary magisterium and so on and so forth. But that does not cover uh, the Pope shooting his mouth off on an airplane. Right. That is, that is not the magisterium of the Catholic Church. It's the Pope shooting his mouth off on an airplane. And he's a human being and, you know, okay. It's it is what it is. There was a joke. There was a joke going around Rome that the uh, the Swiss guards were now uh, uh, armed with tranquilizer guns, and their job was to shoot the Pope whenever he got on an airplane, <laughs> and just have him sleep the whole time. Did you see what um, Did you see what happened at St. Patrick's Cathedral? The yes. Past week? Yes. That is a clear, and I mean, these people did admit to that. They wanted to subvert the church and make a mockery right. of it. Because a lot of Catholics are really upset uh, at the outset, which, I mean, I can't blame them to be. But I remember seeing that, and I remember saying, something's not right here. I don't think any bishop or the diocese would approve any such thing. But it's weird why they let it happen in the first place. I don't understand. What they were deceived. I just tweeted something where is the, the document, documentation of the fact that the priest was deceived. The mm -hmm. priest who allowed this was deceived. And that if the priest who was there actually was deceived, well, you can't hold Cardinal Dolan responsible for this, okay? Right. But you got all of these self-appointed popes now jumping in immediately and condemning Cardinal Dolan without even looking into it. And sad to say, one of these guys is Strickland, Bishop Strickland, who is now bishop at large. Right. Ready, ready at a moment's notice to condemn a fellow bishop. Bishop Strickland went to Medjugorje. The reason Bishop Strickland is not a bishop anymore is because he holds fellow bishops in contempt. This going to Medjugorje was an insult to Bishop Parrish and or to the late Bishop Zonich, who suffered because they stood up for the truth against the Medjugorje industry. Okay? That's an insult to these fellow bishops. That's why he's not Bishop of Tyler, Texas anymore. He did the same thing to Gomez in Los Angeles 
where he jumps off. That's his di- that's that Los Angeles is not in the diocese of Tyler, Texas. So Strickland jumps in, runs in uh, unannounced without asking for any permission and stands up there and condemns the Dodgers for having the sisters of perpetual indulgence there. And standing right aside is Michael Voris, mm-hmm. the prime bishop basher in the United States of America. Well, no wonder the bishops were annoyed at him. He's on someone else's territory. He's got no, this is not the Catholic Church. You are a bishop of a particular place and you're responsible for that. And someone else is responsible for another place and you have no business poaching on his territory. Same thing is true of New York now. Mm-hmm. Both the, the cardinal and the priest say we were deceived. Well, okay. They wanted to take like 10 hours before they announced that they were deceived. Well, we have to give them the benefit of the doubt in the meantime and not jump on this bandwagon. Right. The the John Henry Weston, uh, I'm the Pope bandwagon uh, condemning bishops. What in your mind could be one of the first steps we take to sort of put this? Uh, what's the what's the right what's the right word? Uh, hysteria, you know, to the back seat and just sort of move this country forward as Catholics. Read Logos Rising. Okay, this is the rational basis. It's a history of Logos, which is a Greek word for reason. Mm-hmm. It's about the rationality of the Catholic faith. It's also a history of philosophy. This will cure you of your apparition mania. It will cure you of your Latin mass mania. It will give you the fundamental metaphysical foundation for for belief. Uh, I think that would be a salutary um, antidote to all of the hysteria that's going on right now. Well, well, if you're ever in Nashville, I'd love for you to come with me to the Latin Novus Ordo Mass that we go to. Um, here, let's let's end this on uh, one last question. This is an interesting question, and it's another thoughts question. And I can't believe that so many people just. All right, ask Doctor Jones. He says, "What his thoughts on the state of the real estate market and is usury involved?" Yes, of course it is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Usury is the fundamental problem with the American economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've written a book, another book, uh, a big book called Barren Metal, a History of Capitalism as the Conflict Between Labor and Usury. Uh, the labor is the source of all value. Mm-hmm. The Catholic Church has always promoted labor. Yeah. The model of the Benedictines who colonized Rome for the Catholic Church is ora et labora, work and pray and work. This has always been the Catholic teaching to this day. Labor is the source of all value. What is the option? Usury. There are only two options. And who is, if labor is Catholic, usury is Jewish. And I got the title of my book from Shakespeare's great play, The Merchant of Venice, mm-hmm. where Shylock says, my ducats can copulate faster than Laban's and Laban, you, <laughs> Laban's using rams. And at this point, Antonio says, if it's breed of barometal, keep it. I don't want to go into debt and be your slave. So yes, uh, the reason you're paying an exorbitant amount for a new house is because of usury. This usury, you get in over your head and then you lose it all in the end. So stay away from usury. The main thing we have to 
uh, defend here is again the Catholic Church because there are people out there who are saying the church has changed its teaching on usury. It has not. The church has not changed its teaching. The Pope just, Pope Francis just last week condemned usury. Mm -hmm. So the church has not changed its teaching on usury at all. Does it? Not true. How did it, how did it get that bad? Because I know before, what was it, 1930, there was no, there was no federal income tax. How did, how did, how did we get to the point where we are now that in any facet of commerce, there is going to be interest? Where did this happen? Where did it all go wrong? Did, did it happen after the Second World War and the economic boom of the 50s? Or Can you point to any sort of historical uh, starting point? I sure can. Yeah. The Chompy Rebellion in the 14th century in Florence. Hmm. How's that? Is that good enough? That's definitely and, good and enough. The, 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 rise, the rise of usury with the rise of the money economy in Europe. And Florence was a crucial place in this regard because this is where uh, before the, in the dark ages, before the middle ages, uh, you owed your Lord labor. Mm -hmm. You owed him a day a week or two days a week or something like that. At a certain point, they wanted money. And at that point, you needed a money economy. And at that point, you had to go to the Jew because he was the only one who could, would lend you money. And he charged you 43 and a third percent interest a year. If you're no. lucky, yeah, that sounds that. If you're lucky, sounds familiar. <laughs> if you're lucky, and that and that goes there, and it got more and more complicated to the point where final the final church state was uh, 1742, Vix pervaned it, and he, the Pope uh, Benedict the 14th said, "It's so complicated that I can't pronounce on every single type of transaction because I'm not I'm out of my depth here. I'm not an economist. You need to go to the private forum." Now, some people have said the church the church has not changed its teaching. The church has said the the, the, the economy is so complicated. You're going to have to talk to a specialist uh, in in the confessional. I can't I can't give you a blanket statement. Yeah. Now, if you're talking about the United States, in 1910, 90 percent of all manufacturing in the United in the Midwest, largely in the Midwest, in the United States finance capital improvement out of profits mm -hmm. okay the jews didn't like that yeah they weren't taking out any loans no because you're not borrowing money to finance uh, capital improvement well right. if you don't borrow money the jew goes out of business and so what happened is that they created the federal reserve system after we had two banks before bank in the united states two of them they didn't want to call it that because it uh, they didn't want to call it a bank but that's what it was it's a private bank and it has the benefits it gets to eat its, have its cake and eat it too. It's a private bank that's run by as if a, a, like a government agency. And that's the beginning of more and more usury going throughout the economy. I remember a time when you couldn't uh, have a student loan. I, there were no student loans. And if there are no student loans, they have to keep tuition low. Right. <laughs> well, guess what happened? You introduced a student loan and tuition goes through the roof. In the same way that the real estate prices go through the roof as soon as you involve usury. Yeah. Do you think it'll get better for, let's say, the 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 Gen Zs or the the new Gen Alphas, or do you think it'll continue to get worse for them as far as their well, they're, financial? They're, they're, they're they are uh, forgiving debt. It looks as if they're forgiving debt, which they have to do. The government should uh, basically forgive all student loans immediately. Mm -hmm. Because the student loans were unfair because you could not default on a student loan. Right. So if you're Donald Trump, you can default. Uh, and that's the system is geared. 
that's the way you, you solve the usury problem. You allow liberal default laws. But they're only for rich people. And some poor schmuck who took out a student loan is going to pay for the rest of his life. He'll never get out of debt. That's right. not that's not just. It should be abolished right now. All student loans should be forgiven. I, I, I didn't want to end on that question. Do you have time? Are you okay on time or when you need to? Let's, yeah, let's, yeah, I have time. Let's wind it up though. Okay, we're going to wind it up. Uh, I made a video a couple weeks ago on the Catholic position for voting for Donald Trump. Do you think a Catholic can vote for Trump? Or I mean, you, I know you think a Catholic can vote for Trump. Should a Catholic or ought a Catholic vote for Trump? You know, you can only answer this question when you're faced with the reality of who the opposing candidate is. Mm -hmm. Now, the first time around, the opposing candidate would be was Hillary Clinton. So the question at that point should be, can a Catholic in good conscience vote for Vlad the Impaler? Uh, the answer is, of course, because no one is as bad as Hillary Clinton. I can't think of anyone who would be worse than Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. You always have to make this 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 choice. OK, so if they were ever to, uh, like you bring back, I don't know who King Louis the Ninth, bring him back to, to life. And he's running against Donald Trump. Well, of course, vote for King Louis the Ninth. OK, he's one of my, he has one of my favorite quotes of all time. The best way to converse with a blasphemer is to thrust your sword as far through his bowels as possible. <laughs> I think I don't know if he was being well, literal. That's the duty. <laughs> no, the duty of a kid of a prince is to wield the sword. Right. That's his duty. And if you're not willing to wield the sword, you should go to a monastery. Don't don't become uh, king. Well, listen, uh, Dr. Jones, E. Michael Jones, thank you so much for joining the show. I really do appreciate your time. And I, I'd hope to have you on once again in the future. Maybe we could do a live stream and people can you know comment and ask you questions. That would be great. That'd be great. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for having me on there. You had a lot of intelligent questions. It was really a, a great uh, meeting of the minds. Well, so that I'd is that, I'd be happy to point. No, I'm, I mean it seriously, and uh, I'd be happy to come on your show again. Awesome. Uh, stay in the room for one second after I click the end recording button. Thank you. Okay. Dr. Jones. <laughs>